a different kind of leader captures insights from diverse leaders in healthcare, public health, and academic settings so that our organizations are in a stronger position to grow, innovate, and meet the challenges of our day. To our listeners, thanks so much for joining us. If you haven't listened to part one of Dr. Kamar Jones' interview, please check it out. Now continuing to part two. So when you look at the context, the place we are now at this moment in time in our country, where we are as a nation, as a world even, what do you see as the key challenges that leaders are facing now? Well, there are content challenges and then there are sort of process challenges. You know, actually, I could share those challenges in the way that I think about how we're going to achieve health equity or social equity. So the challenges are valuing all individuals and populations equally, which some people find to be a challenge, and recognizing and rectifying historical injustices and providing resources according to need, not equally, but according to need. And so because those challenges are true across societies, some people are doing better than others on that. But if we were able to do all three of those things, but at least start on one, and the one that you might start on is providing resources according to need, which in some way might then be a recognition and rectifying of historical injustices. And in that way, you manifest that you value all individuals and populations equally. So maybe the way you start goes backward from how I said them to you at first. But I think that those are the challenges. And I just published a piece yesterday for something that I've been talking about a lot. In this country in particular, in the United States, there are seven of what I used to call societal barriers to achieving health equity or cultural barriers to achieving health equity, which I have come to understand now are the values targets for anti-racism action. When I define racism, I define it as a system that does two things. It structures opportunity and is assigns value. We know a lot of the structural targets. We know that residential segregation by race is a structural target or the way we fund public schools based on local property taxes or all the structures that result in you know, the disproportionate incarceration of black and brown men and women or you know, the environmental poisonings and all that. So these are the structural targets. But the values piece, we have been not addressing. We're so focused on the structures. And for people who are familiar with my gardener's tale, I used to be all about the quality of the soil, about the flower boxes, you know, and the inaction in the face of need, keeping things separate, right? But the gardener's initial preference for red over pink set up the whole situation where she separated red seed into rich fertile soil and pink seed into poor rocky soil. Even if we were to compel that red gardener to enrich the poor rocky soil today until it was as rich as the rich fertile soil, addressing some of the structural stuff, if she continues to prefer red over pink, she'll continue to privilege red over pink going forward. When I understood that in the middle of doing a talk, then I was like, her initial preference for red over pink, that's one of the seven values targets. That's white supremacist ideology in in our setting, but there are others. So it's not just the white supremacist ideology, the cultural racism, if you will, contributed it to the Harvard Primary Care blog. Like they kept saying, you know, Kamara, send us something. So this was the next thing I wanted to write. So that's where it is. So it's not even published in a journal or it's not even a New York Times op-ed. It is a Harvard Primary Care blog thing where you can find it and hopefully lots of eyes will find it there. 
But the seven things are our narrow focus on the individual, which we already talked a little bit about, but the narrow focus on the individual, which makes systems and structures invisible or irrelevant. The fact that we're ahistorical, we act as if the present were disconnected from the past and as if the current distribution of advantage and disadvantage were just a happenstance. Our endorsement of the myth of meritocracy, the story that goes like this, if you work hard, you'll make it. Recognizing that, yes, most people, not all, but most people who've made it have worked hard, but there are many, many other people working just as hard or harder who will never make it because of an uneven playing field. The fourth is the myth of a zero-sum game that goes something like this. If you gain, I lose, which puts people in a competitive stance and it masks the cost of inequity. And it's almost like people think, I have a potluck dinner. I don't even want you to come because I think you're just going to come and eat all the food. And I don't recognize that you're bringing cakes and pies and roasts and Mm. things with you. The fifth is our limited future orientation, recognizing that the two parts of the future we can touch are our children and the planet. We have disregard for the children and a usurious relationship with the planet. The sixth is the myth of American exceptionalism, that we're so different, special, whatever it is, that we can't even learn from other people, don't even need to be interested, right? Oh, if we would only learn about the successful strategies of dealing with COVID-19 that almost all other countries are implementing. Um, Literally, almost every country. And then the seventh is the first, the white supremacist ideology. And sometimes when people say that word, people think, oh, that's a lightning rod term. No. All it is is the false idea of a hierarchy of human valuation by race with white people as the ideal or the norm. But that false idea, that white supremacist ideology gives white people, people who are living as white, I should say, a sense of entitlement. It results in the dehumanization of people of color, and it has created this fear at the browning of America that is underlying a lot of our politics these days. So those seven things, those are challenges in this country. So we have the structural challenges and we have the values-based challenges. How do we address those? Is it in our media? Is it in our curricula in schools? Is it in community conversations? Is it in our religious institutions? What do we do? But we must address those because those things, especially four of those things, the narrow focus on the individual that makes systems and structures invisible or irrelevant, the ahistorical that the presence disconnected from the past, myth of meritocracy that blames people for not having made it, and white supremacist ideology. Those four things directly result in the staunch racism denial in this country that is our baseline positioning. And when you are in denial that racism exists, then how can you address it? So in some way, you have to address those values pieces in order to get enough people recognizing the structural pieces and the harm that they do. Kamara, your work is so deeply personal and resonant for so many of us in terms of the ways that you have deconstructed and restructured and sort of made visible for us this work, the the work that you do around race and racism. And it's so gratifying for me to be able to pull up this work when I'm teaching, when I'm working with students, fellows, faculty, to be able to demonstrate in such an elegant way, the way your allegories sort of demonstrate the realities that we're all living with, and particularly the realities that those of us from racial and ethnic groups, from sexual or gender minorities that are visibly different experience. And so I'm going to shift to our last sets of questions. And the first is, I prefaced all of that because what do you do for self-care? Because when you're doing something that's so deeply personal and you're giving so generously of yourself, there's a potential toll 
what do you do to keep yourself or allow yourself to be present in the ways that you have been really since I've met you? And it's so evident in your writing, in the spirit in which you engage in conversation, the way you teach, the way you offer that kind of advice. It's all coming from, from you. How do you make sure there's enough of you <laughs> for you? <laughs> well, I was getting pretty close to the edge when the racial disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on yeah. racial and ethnic minoritized groups became because all of a sudden everybody wanted a piece of me. I was like, oh, I've been saying these things for decades. Yeah. Like, I'm happy to be on your new show now, but like, are you just, you know, you're just finding this mm-hmm. work. So, yeah. So I was at the edge. I was at the edge. And it's because I'm so interested. It's so important to share this work. And so now I'm sort of striking while the iron is hot. But what I do is I have a loving husband who cooks. I was in an apartment for nine months by myself at Radcliffe, but they used to feed us like three days a week. (laughs) And then I had my tofu that I would slice my marinated tofu and my crackers. And I, that was it. And then when everything closed and I stayed there, then I started learning to cook a little bit. But my husband, basically, if he didn't feed me, I might be dead. Oh, my. So, I mean, so he, not just spiritually, you know, in, in terms of love and relationship, but he physically keeps me alive. So that's one thing. And, and his love and, and being willing to, to, we moved a few places, you know, in our marriage. Mm-hmm before coming to Atlanta. Then I told him the next move was his. So we've been here for 20 years now. <laughs> but I also, I would rather do puzzles than read. It's an interesting thing. I used to do a lot of Sudoku puzzles, but now I've switched over for about a year or so now into crossword puzzles, which I used to think I didn't have enough, like just regular knowledge to do them. It helps that you can Google things. If you think you know the answer, you can check it by Google. That's so funny. I always felt the same way about crossword puzzles. I'm like, I don't, I don't know enough about enough things. <laughs> I, I, I can do these now. So, <laughs> And I have been a vegetarian. So first I started being kind of a no red meat, no poultry, but I'd eat fish and dairy. So this is good. So from my sophomore year in college, which was a long time ago, And then I knew that I was lactose intolerant in 2005. So I cut out the dairy. I still do eat fish. I do eat eggs. So, but anyway, I've been like that. So I'm just going to say, so let me tell you how many years for 46 years. So that keeps me healthy. I'm sure I'm healthier than if I were eating meat and those other things. I used to run a lot and I'm still walking a lot and I could run. I just haven't started running And I try to do, you know, I'm aware that I should start doing weights and stuff like that now. And I sing. If I hadn't done medicine and public health, I would have been a singer. I mean, I have a beautiful voice, a wide range, but especially, you know, wider in the upper soprano than most people Mm. get, but, you know, a wide range. And I've sung all kinds of things in my life. I used to sing when I was back as a doctoral student at Hopkins, finishing my PhD after having done the family medicine, I sang with the acapella group Rafiki Nadara, which is oh, wow. Kiswahili for friends and sisters. And at first we started singing songs of, you know, South African freedom songs, because this was before the change in government and, you know, Mandela coming out and then being elected president. And then we started writing our own music. So we were starting singing other songs, African freedom songs from other parts of the continent. And then we started writing our own social justice music. And then I moved up to Harvard. So we still text like 
four times a day. Like we're still together. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's beautiful. So I sing. And so then, you know, so everywhere I go. So I sing now in my church choir, except that they've reduced it to a trio now. And I'm not trying to go do that. I'm not trying to, you know, practice or anything. So I'm, I sing along with them when I see them on TV right now, the three of them who are singing. Mm-hmm. And then I was part of a community course here, the Trey Clegg Singers. We just had our virtual retreat last Saturday, and we're going to do those those kind of virtual things where everybody sings and then they put it all together. So we're going to do that for our Christmas concert. So I sing. I love doing that. That is awesome. That's something I didn't know about you. Can't wait for your Christmas choir ensembles. Tell me about a book that you would recommend to others, either a leadership book or one that you routinely or even now would recommend to other people. So as I told you, I would rather do puzzles than read. So this is a hard thing for me. I mean, I, I, I'm not as well read as one would hope that I would be. The book that is my contribution to our book club that we're reading now is The Color of Law by Richard Ross. Oh, yes. So that's the more recent history of how the federal government segregated U.S. communities. So I'm looking forward to reading Isabel Wilkerson's cast. You know, the warmth mm-hmm. of the sons was great. I recommend, so I read Michelle Alexander's The right. New Jim Crow, mm-hmm. Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Also on my bookshelf to read is From Here to Equality by William Darity and his co-author. Yeah, that's on mine too. So those are sort of important books to read, but they're not romance <laughs> novels. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like this. Not it's Daniel like Steele. Right. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> it's not. For fun like that, my attention span in reading is brief. So in the past, I used to read short stories a lot. I haven't even gotten back into that now. But I mean, short stories is sort of like my speed. I just remember my favorite short story. I must have read it when I was in high school, but it's O. Henry's Gift of the Magi. Mm-hmm. The one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, short stories. And so I'm also interested in science fiction. So I've read the sister Ursula Le Guin. Is she the sister? Mm-hmm. Or Octavia Butler? Octavia Butler. Yeah. Octavia Butler. Mm-hmm. So short stories, just because I'm so distractible and people are always grabbing at me that I don't have enough time to say, I'm going to just keep reading. And then if I come back to it a week later, maybe I don't remember. And then I have to go back. You know, it's too much. I also don't read as much as I would like, but for the opposite reason that when I start reading something that I love, I read it cover to cover. And I, you know, I used to do that in my 20s, 30s, even 40s. But now I can't stay up all night reading a book and then function the next day. (laughs) Tell me, what do you think separates good leaders from great leaders? Caring and respect and, and an ability to learn. Dr. Satcher always says it. I may not say it the way he says it, but this is, so I've always had the belief that everybody has something to teach me, but the way he says it is that everybody has something to teach and everybody has something to learn. So it's that same kind of idea. And so an openness to learn, not feeling that you have everything tied up, that you understand everything that, that at your decision-making table, you have all the knowledge that you need, like none of that. So caring and an openness to learn. And then the last question we ask all of our guests is, what advice would you give your younger self? I don't know. Maybe I should have been a singer. I don't know. Because every single momentary decision will take you in another thing. And it might be that our paths are in some way so guided by our inner self that you could go zigzag, zig, or you could go zag, zigzag, and you might still end up at the same place. So 
what I have done in my life is that each decision point, I've sort of made it commitments of three to five years in general. And this is something else I tell mentees, you know, make a three to five year plan. But as you're about to finish that plan, sow a lot of different seeds that might be of interest to you. And then some things will sprout. And then you take a 360 degree look around and you pick the thing that is most interesting or compelling to you at that time. So it might not take you in a straight line. It might take you all the way back, right? Mm. You might do a 180 or you might do a 90 left or a 90 right. So you don't know, but then you make another three to five year plan and then you take a 360 degree look around and then you take your next path. And if you keep doing that, then you're always doing the thing that engages you or compels you the most at that time. And, and so that instead of already trying to predict what you're going to do, we really don't know where are we going to be 20 years from now? And it might be that the thing you're doing 20 years from now is something that you created, that it doesn't even exist right now. And so what I did is be flexible with myself, maybe promote myself more. Mm-hmm. This is just something my mother was so proud of her three daughters, the doctors, that she was always promoting us. And then when she passed in 2013 and then my father in 2018, I didn't have anybody to promote me anymore. And so, you know, my CV records what I do, but I don't, you know, some people, their signatures have like all of these things. Mm -hmm. Like I could have all those things too. Like I have a lot of things that I don't have on my signature, you know, honorary degrees or, you know, this certification and this or fellow of that, you know, or, you know, these play, you know, and, and I don't do that, but maybe I should or should have, or still should. All of that is great advice that I think anybody could benefit from. Mara, this has been just a wonderful time together. I'm so grateful that we've had the opportunity to to just spend this this time. It's always a blessing to to me and to my spirit to be able to sort of be in your presence and just almost watch you think. Unfortunately, we're not recording it, but the you know, you're so animated and sort of watching you think is just it's just joyful to me to watch. So thank you. And thank you so much for all of your contributions to this work and and that's so incredibly relevant at this moment in time. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me to do this with you. It was fun. It was fun. (laughs) Thanks to our listeners for joining us. Again, special thanks to Dr. Kamara Jones. This episode was edited by Kingdom Media from Fiverr. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate us and leave a comment wherever you listen to podcasts it helps others to find us. And we'll make sure to put links in the show notes to Dr. Jones' TED Talk, her piece that she recently wrote mentioned in the interview, and some of her past writings so you can learn more about her allegories on race and racism. Like and comment on Facebook and Instagram at Different Kind of Leader, all one word, as well as on Twitter at DK Leadership. As always, we want to hear from our listeners. Contact us at differentkindofleader at gmail.com. Please let us know what leadership questions you have for guests and which inspiring leaders you would like for us to interview next. Many thanks to the DKL production team with host Giselle Corby-Smith, executive producer Sable Watson, producer and creative director Rachel Quinto, production assistant Jamie Ede, and music by Mix Out and Chill Out Lounge. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is A Different Kind of Leader.